Let's take our Bibles this morning and open them to 1 Kings in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to begin reading down at verse 22 in just a few minutes to kind of pick up this story. And this is like the climactic moment in the life of Elijah. This is the moment that he was born for. And so this is a really cool moment in Scripture that I hope you'll kind of hang with me for the next uh, few minutes. And we're going to work our way through uh, this passage of Scripture, not read the whole thing at one time, but kind of walk through it this morning. On September 26, this last fall, there was a huge gathering on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It was a gathering of Christians. They came together for worship, to read God's Word, to pray, specifically to pray for our country. Uh, tens of thousands of people showed up, and uh, the, a lot, there was a lot of media attention on that moment. One particular reporter who is a, an avowed atheist, he's a professed atheist, I'm not calling him a name, he says that of himself, that, uh, that he denies that there is a God, and he's pretty much at, not just atheist, he's anti-theist, he's, he's kind of anti-God, writes for a website that uh, kind of likes to cast Christians in the worst possible light, and here's what he reported about that rally. He said, people prayed, they sang, they chanted, they swayed. They cried out, come Lord Jesus, but Jesus didn't come. And so the headline of his article was this, quote, thousands gather at Christian rally, but God did not show up. Now, the attendees at that rally would have argued something much different, that what they experienced in that moment was that God did show up in a very powerful and, and impactful way in their life but not in a way that someone who was a non-believer would, uh, would experience that. Now, what we long for in our lives, what we long for in our church, is something that would happen to us and through us that would spill out into our city and into our nation, and that is a move of God that would be undeniable by the most ardent unbeliever. What we desire is to see God move in such a way that his presence is made known. God is everywhere. We don't have to ask God to be present. God is everywhere. But we want him to make himself known as prayer. We want his, what is called his manifest presence, the, the manifestation that he is here and he is with us. And that's what happens in the passage that we're going to read today. And I believe it's what we need to experience in a fresh way, not so much the physical attributes of fire falling from the sky, but we want and desire for the fire of God's Spirit to come down, to move among us, to, to change us, to use us, and, and to draw people to faith in Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage. It, it has every marking of just a, an ancient conflict. There was an ancient king who introduced idolatry to his people. His name was Ahab. And he introduced a false god, the god of another nation called Baal, to his people. He started building temples and altars and statues to this false god. There was a prophet of the one true God of Israel. His name was Elijah. And Elijah confronted Ahab and he said to him, Because you have introduced this worship of a false god, the true God is going to turn off the rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain. It infuriated Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel, and so they began to try to slaughter anyone who was loyal to the true God of Israel. 
And they wanted to kill Elijah, but God had hidden him away. And after three and a half years, Elijah reappears. And rather than running from Ahab, he confronts Ahab and he says, let's just meet at Mount Carmel, a mountain uh, in the area of, of ancient Israel. He says, let's just all meet there. As a matter of fact, you bring the 450 prophets of Baal that Jezebel feeds every night at her banquet table. Bring the 400 prophets of Asherah, bring them all, and you, then let's gather up all the people. And let's just have a contest on Mount Carmel. Now, what you need to understand is that Mount Carmel was the epicenter. It was like the focal point of the worship of Baal. So what he says is, I'll give you guys home field advantage. And he says, we can go to Mount Carmel and we'll have this contest and settle this. Which God is God? When he gets there, he calls the people. And he says, you, you kind of are hanging on to the true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. You're kind of hanging on to him, but you're kind of hanging on to Baal. And he says to them, how long will you hesitate between two? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, go ahead, run after him. And the people said nothing. You know why? Because all the people wanted was rain. That's what they, like, bring back the rain. Whoever brings back the rain, that's who, that's who we want. And so they didn't say a thing. And so Elijah proposes this contest of the gods. And as much as this has looked like a contest between Elijah and Ahab, it is not. They are minor players. This is a contest between Yahweh, the true God of the universe, and a false idol that is impotent and powerless. And the true God intends to show up and show out in this passage. Here's the way that Elijah phrased it in verse 22. He says, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put fire and no fire and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And the people said, that is a good idea. This is great. Let's, let's just have a contest. I mean, life's kind of boring. There's been a drought. There's not anything exciting happening. Let's have something exciting happen here. Let the prophets of Baal cut up an ox, build an altar, put the ox on the altar, but you can't light the fire. Only the God who answers by fire. Fire falls from heaven, from the sky on this. And Elijah says, I'll do the same thing over here, and we'll just see which God is God. And so they agree to this contest. The prophets of Baal have home field advantage. This is the epicenter of Baal worship. And then Elijah says, we won't even do the coin toss. I'll just let you guys go on offense first. You guys can, can go ahead and call on Baal. Let's see if Baal answers. And what proceeds out of this moment is that the prophets of Baal began to seek after Baal to rain down fire. Now remember this. God has, the true God has already messed with Baal. 
because Baal was the rain god, and God turned the rain off. Well, when it would rain, it would thunder, and it would lightning. Fire would come from the heavens. So, so this is right in Baal's wheelhouse. He ought to be able to do this if he's real. And so the prophets of Baal began to call on Baal, and nothing happens. And the reason nothing happens is because sometimes I honestly believe that God lets us fail in order to expose our false hopes. I think God sometimes lets us run after something and lets us experience failure and unfulfillment in order to show us how empty and how hollow our false hopes really are. Now listen to the story as it unfolds, beginning at verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. It begins with Elijah letting them go first, and they begin to call out to Baal. Now, now remember, there are 450 of them. And so they're chanting, and they're praying, and they're calling on Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. And this starts early in the morning. And the Bible says that this goes on until noon. And the intensity increases, and, and it's hot, and, and it's a drought, and they're sweating, and, and they're dancing around this altar, and they're calling on Baal, and then they begin to just leap up on top of the altar and just stomp their feet, perhaps, and jump up and down and say, Baal, you've got to answer us. You've got to answer us. They're getting all worked up, and nothing happens. No one answered, and there was no voice. Well, at about noon, Elijah decides, I think it's time for me to speak up. I mean, he's just, I picture Elijah. He's kind of standing over the side, leaning on a rock. Every now and then he just shakes his head like, wow, this is dumb. But he didn't say anything. But at about noon, he decides to speak up. Look at verse 27. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. I love this. I'll come back to it. And said, call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. That, that, there's something implied there like, isn't he? For there, he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So, they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Elijah watches this throughout the entire morning. At noon, he decides to speak up. And he speaks up and says, and the Bible says he mocked them. You know, there are passages that when I read them, they convict me. They show, show me how sinful and shallow I am. But sometimes I read a passage 
and it affirms me. It makes me feel better about myself. And this is one of those. Sarcasm is my spiritual gift sometimes. And, and that's exactly where Elijah is. He mocks them. He gives no respect to their claim of truth. Not every truth claim is worthy of respect. Now I want you to hear me. All people are created in the image of God. All people, regardless of the color of their skin, their nationality, their ethnicity, the language that they speak, all people are worthy of dignity and respect. Christ died for all people, for the sins of the world. Okay? Let's get that straight on the one hand. On the other hand, not all ideas are worthy of respect. Some should be mocked and ridiculed. And parents, sometimes your teenagers are going to have an idea that ought to be mocked and ridiculed, okay? Not every idea is a good idea. Not every claim to truth is valid. But we live in a world where you cannot mock anybody's idea. Because as Elijah does this, I thought if this had happened today, the prophets of Baal would have been going to Ahab going, we need a safe space. We need a space where we don't have to hear his ridicule and his mockery. And, and, and he's oppressing us with his claim that there's only one God. And so we, we need a safe space. That's what they would have done. Not every truth claim is valid. Not every truth claim is worthy of respect. You know, when the coronavirus started, there were all these articles about what people were doing. Some reasonable, some reasonable. Maybe they didn't work, but they seemed reasonable at the time. But there were some that were just outlandish. And the one that I will never forget is that in India, the majority of people are Hindu. Cows are sacred. And there were people who believed that if they drank cow urine, that they would ward off the coronavirus. Let me tell you something. That idea shouldn't be even considered as sane. It should be mocked and ridiculed. Jesus died for Hindu people in India. Okay, they're worthy of respect and dignity. The idea is dumb. It should not be accepted. But listen to what Elijah says. He says, hey, uh, maybe you guys need to call out with a loud voice. Maybe you just need to get, maybe you need more cowbell. That's what you, more cowbell is what you need for your worship service. What? The true God, you understand why this is mockery? Because the true God can hear a silent prayer. You don't have to get louder for him. I love it. Call out with a loud voice. For he is a God. And then he says this. Elijah says, either he is occupied or gone aside or on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. The true God does not sleep, neither does he slumber. That's what the Bible says. He doesn't need to be awakened. And I love the phrase in this passage that says, maybe he has gone aside. That is a Hebrew idiom. It's a figure of speech that means maybe he's in the toilet. That's what that meant, okay? If he's in the toilet, though, he's been there all day. Maybe Baal needs some more fiber in his diet or something. I don't know, but he has... Elijah is mocking them with this very idea. Now, here's what's really, really compelling about this. Is that they did what Elijah said. He says, maybe you need to get louder. 
Look at verse 28. So they cried with a loud voice. They turned up the volume. Yeah, maybe oh, I just got a good idea. Maybe we ought to get louder. And then, as was the custom of Baal worship, they began to cut themselves and bleed. Now, remember, they're covered in sweat. They cut themselves. Blood is gushing out. They're covered with blood and sweat as they dance around this altar. And they do more and more, crying out for fulfillment and an answer from their false god. And verse 29 says it this way. There was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Because there was nobody home. Baal obviously isn't real. You know that. You know the way the story goes here. And yet, they thought if we just do more, if we just invest more, if I spend more time on that, it'll give me a return. If I put more money into it, if I, if I, if I just devote myself more, somehow I'll find fulfillment. And while most of you don't have a wooden or golden statue to something in your house that you bow down to and call it an idol, you don't have idols in that sense. Let me explain something to you. Anything you look to, to fulfill the longing of your soul, other than the one true God, is an idol. If it's entertainment, if it's pleasure, if, it's, if, it is, uh, if it's the affection of other people, if it is the approval of a crowd, in our culture, it's material things a lot of times. We, we really honestly believe the advertising that if we just get a better house or we just get a better car or we just get a better pair of underwear, our life is somehow going to be fulfilled and complete. That's what they tell us. And we buy it, literally. Not only do we buy it like we believe it, but we buy it. And we think that's going to make me feel better. That's going to that's gonna do it. And it might do it for a very short period of time, and then it's gone. Then you got to go back. You got to go back. You got to go back. Not long ago, I looked at my wife and I said, You know, my truck's getting a few miles on it, and, and I, I'm thinking I'm, I'm needing a new truck. And she said, What's wrong with your truck? I said, I didn't say there's anything wrong with my truck. I said, I'm thinking about getting a new truck. Well, what kind of truck do you need? Have you seen that one that makes the trailer disappear behind it? She looks at me and she says, when was the last time you pulled a trailer? You're not a rancher. And you know what? She's right. I didn't need a new truck. I wanted a new toy. Because I think somehow that that's going to fulfill me, that somehow that's, that's going to bring some sense of of fulfillment into my life. And let me tell you something, it's not just trucks for middle-aged guys. For some of you, it is likes on social media. And you got to take another selfie today that gets more likes than the one yesterday. And if you get less likes than the one yesterday, man, there's something wrong. For some of us, it's relationships. Just keep swiping right. Just one relationship after another. Maybe the next one's going to work. Maybe the next one will fill the longing of my soul. But there was no voice and no one answered and no one paid attention because we're looking for fulfillment in all the wrong places. Sometimes God lets us be the prophets of Baal and dance around our altars until we are exhausted so that it exposes the emptiness of our false hopes.
But second, there are times in a firefall moment when God responds to faith when we draw very close to him. Elijah watches this spectacle, and it was mildly entertaining from a humor standpoint for Elijah. He is mocking them and laughing and using sarcasm. But Elijah is there on a serious mission. And so he lets this go on all day. The Bible says until the time of the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice was the last religious ceremony of the day. As the sun set in the western sky, there was one final sacrifice to be offered at the end of the day. It was a sacrifice of thanksgiving is really what the purpose of the evening sacrifice was. And so in verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. This has gone on all day. At first, the people of Israel were paying really close attention. But, I mean, everybody's got a limited attention span. And, I mean, after all, this has been going on all, all, all day. Everybody's kind of distracted. So Elijah says, hey, hey, huddle back up, folks. Come back in here. It's my turn now. And the Bible says that the first thing he did was he repaired the altar of the Lord. He repaired the altar of the Lord. Now, the altar was a place where the sacrifice was made, obviously. And so some people would say, well, what, what would that have to do with us? Because after all, on the cross, Jesus made our full and final sacrifice. His blood on the cross paid for our sins. He is the final sacrifice, and there doesn't, we don't need another one. Why would we need an altar? An altar isn't just a place where a sacrifice is made. An altar is a place where you meet God. And for some of us, especially over this past year, I am pretty convinced that in our lives personally, we need to repair our altars. We need to go back and say, where is it that I need to return in order to meet with God? It may be that in the past year, you've just grown kind of distracted. Some of us have grown obsessively, compulsively addicted to cable news. And maybe we need to do something with that to rebuild the altar. For some of us, coronavirus was a reason that we didn't gather in the church. Maybe an extenuating health circumstance. But for some of us, it became a convenient excuse. You know, like if you can tell me at Lowe's, Walmart, or Texas Roadhouse why you feel really unsafe coming back to church... Think about that for a minute. It's not a reason, it's an excuse. And maybe the altar is, for some of you watching, you need to rebuild the altar by coming back with the people of God. Whatever it is, there is a need in our hearts to rebuild the altar and that place or that moment or that attitude and atmosphere in which we meet with God. And so Elijah does that. And then... And then the Bible says in verse 32, So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood 
and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, I love this part. And then he said, fill four pitchers of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Elijah cuts up the offering, puts it on this altar that he's rebuilt, put, arranges the wood underneath it, but he doesn't light a fire. And then in an absolute extreme example of faith, he says, I want you to take four the word is pitchers in my translation. It could be translated barrels. It wasn't just like a little water. It was a lot of water. Now, remember, we're in a three and a half year drought. Water is a precious commodity. And Elijah's pouring it out on the wood and sacrificing it. It's flowing down onto the dirt. Now, why would Elijah do that? A couple of reasons. One of them is pretty obvious. One is that he wanted to make a statement that what was about to happen was an act of God, and it wasn't any sleight of hand. He didn't have sort of a, a torch behind his back or a lighter in his pocket that he was going to reach down and light this thing while he was praying. It wasn't going to be like that. This couldn't be faked, and he wanted to show that, that what is about to happen is a work of God and God alone. I also think it says something about his faith. That he's saying that my God is more powerful than your God. You couldn't even get a spark in order to light dry kindling wood. And my God is going to set fire to rain, to wet water-soaked wood and sacrifice. It's just a step of faith. And so Elijah drenches it, not once, not twice, but three times. And then Elijah jumps around the altar and cuts himself and raves. No, 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 that's not what happens. Then Elijah prays a 22nd prayer. I read it three times this week, kind of time myself. It takes 20 seconds to read this prayer. And that's what Elijah does. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, every time you see the word Lord in this prayer, it is the name for God, Yahweh. Now remember, this is a contrast between Yahweh and Baal. So he's making it real specific who he's praying to. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their back again, turned their hearts back to you again. And he stops. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah prays a 22nd prayer in faith and God responds to it. 
God responds to the faith of the prophet and all of a sudden the fire falls and it doesn't just consume the sacrifice. It burns up the wood. It burns the 12 stones. It burns up the water. It evaporates the water and it burns the dust. I didn't even know fire would do that. It won't unless it's supernatural. What you have is a moment in which Elijah's faith moves the heart of God to do the impossible, to do the miraculous. This is one of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament. It was simple faith on the part of one man that caused God to move. A lot of people say, well, I don't have faith like that. I don't have a big faith like that. Let me explain it to you. It is not the amount of faith you have that makes the difference. It's who your faith is in that makes all the difference. The the tiniest, weakest faith in the true God is more powerful than the biggest, mightiest faith in a false idol. Jesus said that. Jesus said, look, you, you folks think you need to have work up big faith? You just need little faith. Matthew 17, 30. Jesus said, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly, I say this to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. It is not the amount of your faith that matters. It is not the size of your faith. It's not even the maturity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. It's the person in whom you place your faith. The prophets of Baal had big faith. They truly believed that Baal was going to rain down fire. It did not happen because Baal was impotent. Elijah prays a 20-second prayer to the true God. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object of your faith. It's the person that you're trusting. In 1912, Franz Reichert was among many people who, was, who were obsessed with flight. In the United States, the Wright brothers were tinkering with a couple of options for trying to make a machine that flew, and their first two didn't quite work out. But Franz Reichert was a tailor in France, and he was convinced that he had put together a flying suit. It had a lot of excess material, kind of, it was a suit, but it also had some material that kind of draped down from the wrist to the, to the waist, and then in between the legs, there was kind of a flap of fabric, and, and when he spread out, it kind of looked like it would catch wind, like a sail, and it wasn't a horrible idea because there are actually people who use something like this called a wingsuit that they use to jump off of like a cliff. And if you get the updraft just right, you can kind of float down and that sort of thing. Well, Franz Reichert really believed that his suit would fly. And so on February 4th, 1912, he went to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Now, Franz Reichert had told everyone he knew that his suit was going to work. He believed that he could fly with that suit. He was convinced that he could fly with that suit. And so on the morning of February 4th, 1912, he, he and two of his friends went to the top of the Eiffel Tower. His two friends had brought with them a dummy, a, a mannequin type thing that was weighted almost perfectly to the ounce of what Franz Reichert weighed. And the plan had been that they were going to put the suit on the mannequin first and let the mannequin fly off and then 
Franz was going to put on the suit and he would fly off. But Franz was so confident that his suit would work. He was so convinced that his suit would work. He had told everybody he met. And news had spread throughout Paris. And there was a huge crowd that had gathered at the base of the Eiffel Tower. And Franz Reichard said, nope, we're not going to use the mannequin. We're not going to use it. I'm going to put on the suit and I'm going to jump off. His friend said, Franz, you cannot do this. Please don't do this. Use the mannequin. We beg you, don't do this. He said, no, I believe this suit will fly. I believe it with all my heart. He put on the suit. He got on the rail. He jumped off and he plummeted to his death. Big faith. Wrong object. You see, it's not the amount of faith you have. It's the God whom you trust in. I read a sentence this week while I was preparing for this, and it captured my attention. Maybe it'll help you. The smallest faith in the infinitely powerful, promise-keeping God of love is infinitely more powerful than putting all your faith in an impotent, temporary, promise-breaking idol. The smallest faith. God says, I'm going to let you run after things for a while, and I'm just going to expose how empty they are. You're seeking to fulfill the longing of your heart over and over again. Let me tell you, let me tell you what the longing of your heart is. The Bible says you have two longings in your heart. One is you long to be set free from your sin. Now, some people say, I don't even believe in sin. Yeah, you convince yourself of that conveniently so that you don't have to deal with your sin. You long to be set free from sin. You do. You ache for it. But what we do is we run after things that we think will cover it and somehow fulfill our longing. And you long for eternity. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has set eternity in our hearts. Every person in this room, every person watching this right now, you long for eternity. Now you either can believe that somehow you can escape the consequences of sin on your own and somehow you can find a way to live forever, which is what our society continually tries to do, or... You trust a God who's already provided a way. You see, he sent his son to die for your sins, to forgive you and to set you free from that sin. And then he rose from the grave to conquer death and give you eternal life. And all it takes is a small step of faith toward him. And he will answer you. And he will respond to you. And he will fulfill those deep longings of your life. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for this example. From this ancient miraculous story, you are speaking truth to our hearts. Because some of us have run after so many pursuits. We have run after after entertainment and we have run after recreation and we have run after materialism and we have really believed that somehow we'd get, get enough stuff or enough accomplishments that somehow it would fulfill us and we're left empty and exposed 
and the false hopes we've believed in. But God, thank you that you don't ask us to cut ourselves, to mutilate ourselves, to, to plead with you, to beg with you, to shout a little bit louder that all you desire is for us to trust you. To believe that what you have done through your son on a cross pays for my sin debt and to believe that you raised him from the dead by your miraculous power so that we could have life. So God, right now I'm praying for those in this room and those who are listening to this who need to trust Jesus. Those who need to embrace by faith that what he did on the cross sets us free from sin and that by his resurrection we can live forever. In Jesus' name, amen.